I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We've been in the upper room discourse for a little while. Chapters 13 through 17 all take place on Thursday night of the Passion Week. Five full chapters of this one night. And we said before, uh, I think that John, the gospel writer, is going to be so... um, His eyes are going to be so open that paradigm is going to be so shattered that this moment is a defining moment in his life such that I believe 1 John is really an exposition of this discourse. This is going to stick with John. This is such an impression in John's mind. This this whole discourse is so powerful and moving that John just can't get beyond it. He can't get beyond it. The last couple of weeks we've looked at the person of Jesus and the promise of Jesus His person, he is God. To see Jesus is to see God. Philip asks, we want to see the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen what it means to be God. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear the voice of Jesus. To see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. To hear Jesus speak is to hear God speak. And then we looked last week at the promises that Jesus gives us. His promises are profound. Remember the three promises we looked at. Promise number one, we will do the works that Jesus does. Promise number two, we will do greater works than Jesus has done. And number three, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, he'll do it. Those are amazing promises. We sum them all up. There's a lot of people who would read into that, a very man-centered faith. That would just read, okay, I can do greater things than Jesus. I can do greater miracles, signs, and wonders. We looked in depth at those verses last week to see that it's not signs and wonders. It's carrying on the work of Jesus that he was pointing people to the Father and to the truth about himself. And we will carry on that work. And we will do it in an even greater way than Jesus did because we will do it to a greater uh, extent than Jesus has done. We will we will look um, as as if we're doing greater miracles because we are able to do them through the spirit in Other places, remember Jesus was confined to Israel. Jesus was confined in certain places in his body. We get to carry on greater works than he has done. It's amazing. The result of our faith is to represent God and the request of our faith is to glorify God. Faith is God-centered, not man-centered. It's not, I want to perform signs. It's, I want to point people to Jesus. So we looked at that last week. We come to a verse here. We come to a section that contains even more breathtaking promises. I mean, this discourse is just filled with promise after promise that's so encouraging to our hearts. And you have to remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the disciples. They are stuck. They're confused. They're worried. They're anxious. They're scared. And Jesus is going to say what he says to confused disciples, to comfort them, to care for them. And he's doing the exact same to us this morning. He's caring for us. He's comforting our souls. He's talking specifically to you, to a believer. You'll notice as we read these verses, three times very clearly stated in these verses, he says, I'm not offering these things to the world. I'm offering myself to the world, but I'm only offering what I'm giving to you as a promise and a guarantee. I'm only offering it to believers. He's specifying them. And he says, you have something that the world will never fully understand. The question is, who are these promises for? Who are they given to? I think that's what verse 15 attempts to answer. So let's read these verses, verses 15 through 24, John 14, 15 through 24. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and then we will dive in. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you i will not leave you as orphans i will come to you after a little while the world will no longer see me but you will see me Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us, but not to the world anymore? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but it's the father's who sent me. Father, these words are profound. The promises in these verses are staggering. And yet, with our familiarity of the Bible and of the Trinity even, and of these precious doctrines, maybe there has been a level of contempt, or a level of, they don't really apply to me, or a level of indifference. God, I pray that you would be gracious this morning to reveal to us what it means to follow Jesus. God, I praise you for every soul in this room that is here to see Jesus and to hear God clearly speak through his word. But God, I know that there are so many of us that have, whether grown up in church or whether been in church enough, a long enough time that maybe we have a distorted understanding of the gospel, a distorted understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And even reading verses like these, we already feel condemned. We already start thinking, I've got to try harder. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I've got to start keeping commandments harder and, and, and keep them better, and, and then I'll love Jesus. I'll prove my love for him. God, I pray that the gospel would be on display this morning. I pray that Jesus would be presented in such a compelling way that those who do not believe in him would not be able to say no anymore. As they see the beauty of Jesus, they would relinquish control of anything else that they have in their life. Let it go and grab hold of Jesus, the greatest treasure in the world. So Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that we would see Christ and cherish him above all things. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. These verses, as we've been going through these verses, these verses are like Pandora's box. When we open them, we just open a whole new world. I knew we were going to have to slow down as we got into the upper room discourse, and that's why I wanted to speed up a little bit before we got into it so that we wouldn't be spending decades in the Gospel of John. But I didn't know how slow we were going to have to slow down. Um, originally, I wanted to take verses 15 through 24, and uh, that's why we read them. And you can see the, the continuity in those verses. We're going to look at them together, but I want to focus our time and attention on one verse, verse 15, John 14, verse 15, because I think to understand the rest of the discourse, we have to understand this verse. Now, I, I think I'm in okay company as far as slowing down because the Puritans, there are three Puritan preachers who spent seven to ten years on the Upper Room Discourse, preaching a sermon series through the Upper Room Discourse. There's one uh, Puritan preacher who preached one sermon on John 14, verse 15, on the word if. So we're not doing that this morning. We're not slowing down that slowly. But we have to slow down a little bit. Now, before we dive into these verses, I just want to remind us how we preach the Bible. Just a, a, a little side note, because I think it will help us as we're going through this. There are many ways to preach a sermon. We believe at this church the most faithful that we can be to the text is to preach expositional sermons. That means whatever the message is in the Bible, whatever the authorial intent is in that passage, we say that. That's what the message is. We don't try to put meaning into it. We just say what it's saying. But even expositionally, there's many ways you can splice up expositional preaching. You can do topical expositional preaching, which would say, okay, I want to speak on marriage from the Bible, and so I'm going to go to chapters and verses in the Bible that speak on marriage. If marriage is the authorial intent in the Bible, in certain passages, we'll use those passages, so it's topical exposition. There's theological exposition. I want to preach about the Holy Spirit, so we're going to go to passages that exposit, that truly understand and identify for us and explain who the Holy Spirit is, what his work is, what his role is. 
there's textual exposition or thematic exposition where as you're going consecutively through a passage, you get to a word or a phrase and you just kind of drill deep into that idea. You're missing the big picture, but you drill deep into that idea. And then there's consecutive exposition. That's what we do to see the specific pieces of the verse and to understand the words. We have to see the whole. So we move decently quickly through passages because we're trying to connect everything to give all of us a feel and an understanding of what's happening. But here this morning, we have to do a little bit of textual exposition. We have to dive deeply into this one verse and pause from moving on to the rest of these verses. In context, let's just do really quickly, let's do our consecutive exposition. In context, verse 15 is very clear. There's no uh, fuzzy nature to these words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying the qualifications for the person who's going to do those greater works that we looked at last week, the qualifications, you have to love Jesus. The promises that are being given are not promises that are given to anybody willy-nilly. These promises are for people who love Jesus. Again, John's exposition of this discourse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, John says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So whatever we ask, we receive because we do his commandments. We keep his commandments because we love him. So verse 15 goes back up to verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's a qualifier for the way that we pray. Again, we said in my name, in Jesus's name is not the Christian abracadabra, right? It's not, well, we'll just put that phrase on it and we'll get whatever we want. It's according to his will. And of course, if you love him, you're going to be asking for things in accordance with his will. This verse helps guard against a sense of manipulating Jesus for our own desires. Okay, I, I want to get things from Jesus. And therefore, since I want to get things, I just say in Jesus' name and he's my personal genie. No, 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 it's about love. Do you love him? So the simple explanation here is very, very clear. If you love me, that's agape love. If you love me, you will keep, that's to treasure or to hold or to walk in with joy, my commandments, that's rules or truths to be followed. So in the words of William Hendrickson, we could say, if with love that is both intelligent and purposeful, you love me, you will accept, obey, and stand guard over the rules which I have laid down for the regulation of your inner attitudes and of your outer conduct. I'll read that one more time. If with love that is both intelligent and purposeful, you love me, you will accept and obey and stand guard over the rules which I have laid down for the regulation of your inner attitudes and your outer conduct. So, in context here, in our sequential, con- moving forward, and the, the context-driven, um, understanding this verse is very easy. In fact, Jesus is going to say four times in these short verses, 15 through 24, The exact same thing. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And verse 24 is stated conversely in the negative. He who does not love me does not keep my words. This is the theme of these verses. We need to slow down. And we need to drill deep into verse 15. The reason why we need to is because verse 15 holds the gospel. Verse 15 holds with clarity the gospel. But so often we befuddle verse 15 and we turn it into keeping God's rules such that we will be loved by him. That's not what this verse is saying. So I want to ask three questions of this one verse. We'll answer them together biblically, and then we'll see how far we get at the end of the sermon. Question number one, what does it mean to love Jesus? That's the qualification. If you love me, you're going to do something. So what does it mean to love Jesus? That's question number one. Question number two, what are these commandments, and what does it mean to keep them? What are the commandments? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are the commandments, and what does it mean to keep them? Question number three, what are you promised 
if you do love him. Again, these verses are for care and promises that are greater than we could possibly comprehend given to his disciples for comfort and encouragement. So what are we promised if we love him? Let's start with the first question, okay? What does it mean to love Jesus? If you love me, you will keep my commandment. What does it mean to love him? What does it mean to truly love Jesus? Let's start with two things that it doesn't mean, but sometimes we take it to mean. Number one, loving Jesus is not obeying Jesus. Loving Jesus is not obeying Jesus. The source of our obedience is love for Jesus. Obedience is the result. If you love me, it will result in obedience, in keeping commandments. But so many people, myself included, turn love into a list of things that we need to do. Love equals obedience. It doesn't. In fact, biblically, we can do a lot of quote-unquote obedient things. We can do a lot of good things externally, but not have love in our hearts. 1 Corinthians 13, does that ring in your mind? If we give up our body to be burned, but we don't have love, then it accomplishes nothing. So you can do external things without love. Now, for sure, if you have love, you're going to do the external things, but you can do external things without having love. So love does not equal obedience. The reason why we need to state that is because that is a killer in churches. To think that love equals rules that I follow turns everyone into a legalist, right? Well, I just need to follow God, and then I proved I, I need to follow his commands. I need to obey him. I need to uh, do what he tells me to do, and then I'm going to prove that I love him, and I'm going to prove that he loves me, and we turn our relationship with God into a foundation and a basis on our works, our performance. If how well I do externally determines God's love for me and my love for God, then if I'm doing really well, I'm going to look down on you because you're not doing well. I'm going to be elevated in my pride. I'm going to be easily offended by others. I'm going to have a critical judgmental spirit. This kills churches to equate love with keeping rules. This doesn't just kill churches. This kills marriages. Imagine if I went home to my wife and I bought her flowers. I actually never do that because she doesn't like flowers. I bought her chocolate or here's what she really likes. Hey, honey, you don't have to cook tonight. We're going to go out to eat. Okay. You don't have to cook. We're going to go out to eat. Better yet, I got a babysitter and we can go out to eat by ourselves and no child is going to steal our food. If I come home, she goes, I say that to her and she says, oh, that's so sweet. Why are you doing that? I say, I have to. I'm your husband, right? I have to do nice things for you. I have turned love into rules, into list keeping. Um, I'm a husband, so therefore I do these things. Will she go, oh, that's so sweet, and give me a big hug? No. If I say, let's go out to eat, I got a babysitter, oh, why, why, why are we doing this? Is there a special occasion? What's my answer that's going to get the, oh, it's when I say, no, it's because I love you. I was thinking about you all day long. I was looking forward to this, to be able to come home and, and get some time away from the kids. I love you. So, of course, I'm going to do things. I love you. Remember in Fiddler on the Roof when uh, the husband talks to his wife. They've been married since they were little kids. And the husband says, beautiful song. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Like we got, it was an arranged marriage. We got married at a young age. We didn't even know each other. It was the first time we met was our marriage. Do you really love me? What's the wife's answer in a very, very beautiful song? Of course I love you. I do all of these things for you. And he knows, he sees through that, and he says, no, no, that's, that's not love. I know you do those things, but I'm asking, do you love me? There's a difference between doing and love. Do you love me? And she keeps arguing with the rules, well, I, or, or the list. I do these things, I do these things, I do these. And finally she says, I guess I do love you. I guess I do really love you. And that's why I do all the things that I do. So love, not law, lies at the center of Christ's followers. Mere duty will not generate obedience to Jesus. Only love can do that. So don't turn love into a list of laws that you have to keep. 
So that's not love. Number two, sometimes we think, okay, Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love him the way that he loves me. We've got to be careful there because this can turn into heresy really fast. We do not love Jesus the way that he loves us. How does Jesus love us? He loves us in spite of us, right? He loves us in spite of our sin, in spite of our failures. He loves us graciously. Let's just be very clear. We don't ever love Jesus graciously, right? Like, well, you really kind of messed up today, but I'll still love you. No, 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 no. We don't love Jesus graciously. So love is not obeying Jesus. It's not a list. And loving Jesus is not the way that he loves us. That brings us to what is it? What is loving Jesus? What does it mean to love Jesus? If we're not loving him graciously, in spite of his shortcomings, then we have our answer, right? We love him because of who he is inherently. We love him. He has no faults. He has no failures. And we cherish everything. We find him more desirable than anything in this world. Love for Jesus is a response to his beauty. Love for Jesus is a response to his greatness, to his glory. We see him and we can't help but love, ourselves, love him with our own hearts. We can't help but do that. Loving Jesus is it's pleasurable. We desire him because he's infinitely desirable. We admire him because he's infinitely admirable. We enjoy him, we cherish him, we're satisfied in him because he's infinitely satisfying. Love for Jesus is just saying, you're amazing and I love you for everything that you are. How do we have that? How do we have love for Jesus? We studied it in John chapter 3. It's a, it's a reflex of the new birth. Love for Jesus is a reflex of the new birth in your heart. At one time, dead in your trespasses and sins, your taste buds did not work for Jesus. You had taste buds that only tasted and enjoyed and loved sin. In fact, what we're going to see today, tasting of Jesus left a bitter taste in your mouth. Who is, I don't like this guy. He's, oh, he's disgusting. He, he's repulsive. I don't want him. But then the new birth happens. And when the new birth happens in your heart, your taste buds change. And now what you used to hate and find bitter, you now find sweet. You can't get enough of Jesus. You say with the psalmist, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and I want more. I want more. So many people follow Jesus, quote unquote, because of this formula. Well, the Bible says that sinners go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. So I I hear that you have to just say, please help me, Jesus. I'm going to say that so I don't go to hell. In Jesus' name, amen. But that's not love. That's not saying, I want to be with Jesus because of everything that he is. That's just saying, I don't want to go to hell, so what do I need to do to get out of hell? Now, granted, that can start you down the road of seeing, oh, Jesus has saved you, for sure. Amen and amen. We need the bad news. But love for Jesus is a reflex of the new birth such that you say, I can't help but want more. I can't help but want more. I love this. I love you. So love is not doing excellent things. Love is delighting in an excellent Savior. Obedience is fruit, but it's not the root. Love is the root. Obedience flows from love. Don't mix these up. Sometimes we interpret this verse to say, if you keep my commandments, Jesus says, then I will love you. As if there's some performance mentality where God's just sitting in heaven, arms folded, looking at us and telling us it's not good enough, not good enough. You need to love me more by obey me, obey me, obey me, obey me, rules, lists, and then I'll love you. That's what we would call meriting mercy. You can't merit mercy. Mercy is graciously given. Mercy is without you doing anything. It's the gracious favor of God. So if you have a love for Jesus that craves him above all things, that's a byproduct of the new birth. So you're saved, and thus you're going to naturally live out obedience. Your faith will not be proven dead. 
because it's going to be accompanied by works. Works are affirming that the new birth has happened. Now, we have to ask the question. Am I seeing this correctly? Is this just Christianese language? Is this biblical that this is what love is? Sometimes we hear agape love and we go, well, that's just unconditional love. And and we put very uh, duty driven, stoic nature. I love Jesus. Look at what I do for him. And I'm arguing that's not love. Love is a desire. Love is not stoic. Love is I couldn't help myself because I want to be with you. I want you. Am I seeing it correctly? Let's ask John. Okay, John, John will help us. Go to John chapter three. Where does John use the word agape? Where does he use this word? John chapter three, verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. They loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I don't love the light because I love the darkness. I want to live in the darkness because I want to be able to do whatever I want to do without any spotlight being shown on my sinful depravity. People loved darkness rather than light. They preferred it. They wanted it. They craved it the same word that jesus used if you love me do you prefer me do you want me do you crave me what about john chapter 12 turn to john chapter 12 john chapter 12 verse 43 these uh, rulers believe in jesus but because of the pharisees they're not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Their external deeds were motivated by love. They cherished the approval of men. They preferred the approval of men. They loved the glory that man was giving them rather than the glory of God. They craved human praise. They craved human praise. You could also write down John chapter 3 verse 35. John 3 35. The father loves the son. And has given all things into his hands. The father loves the son. How does the father love the son? Is it, well, I'll do some things for you. A stoic, duty-driven, let me do things. No, the father loves the son. We see it several times when Jesus is on the earth. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love my son. I love being with him. I love spending time with him. I love everything that he does. I love everything that he is. I love him. So no, I think based on the gospel of John and John's usage of the word agape, this is not some dutiful, noble, stoic way of doing things. Love is desiring, it's craving, it's preferring, it's treasuring, it's cherishing, it's valuing. It's happy awe, just standing in awe of who God is and utter joy and happiness. That's why that's our mission statement. We want to shepherd Every person who comes in these doors to value Jesus above all things, to love him, to crave him, to cherish him. We'll we'll get to the doing part, but let's work on the cherishing part. That's what we want to do as we shepherd our people here at CBC. So what is love? What is the love that Jesus is talking about here in John 14? What does it mean to love Jesus? It means to delight in him, to crave him, to cherish him, to treasure him more than anything in this world. Question number two, what are these commandments? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are the commandments and what does it mean to keep them? What are the commandments and what does it mean to keep them? Now, this is where, again, we hear commandments and we just go to a list of rules, right? We go to moral behavior, ethical behavior, external behavior. Now, that's true, but it's incomplete. And I believe if I'm reading the Bible correctly, it's the minority, Moral behaviors are the minority of what makes up that word commandments. Let's again, let's ask John. John gives a couple moral behavioral commandments that Jesus gave as imperatives. Let me give them to you. 
Love one another, chapter 13, as I have loved you. You need to love people. That's a moral behavioral commandment. Love people. Let me give you the other one. There's only two. The other one, feed my sheep. If you love me, remember the end of John, we'll get to it. Lord willing, in a couple years rather than a couple decades, but we'll get to it. If you love me, feed my sheep. You love me, Peter, then feed my sheep. That's an imperative. Do something. But what about all of the other commands in the Gospel of John? Can I give you all the other commands, the imperatives in the Gospel of John? John chapter 1, verse 12, receive Jesus and believe on his name. John chapter 1, verse 43, on the next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. John 5, 8, Jesus said to the man that he had healed, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. John eleven forty three. when Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. John chapter 12, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. John chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 14, verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Number, uh, chapter 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Chapter 15, verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you, so abide in my love. Chapter 20, verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. These commands are commands for us. These are imperatives for us to believe, to receive, to know him more. These aren't external behavioral commands. Do this, do that. These are internal. Receive, believe, know him more. So if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments to receive him to, to believe in him, to know him more. That makes perfect sense, right? If you love Jesus, you're going to want more of him. If you love him, you're going to want to be with him. Again, John's exposition, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We keep his commandments, but not in a duty-driven, duty-bound, I just need to do this. They're not burdensome because they get more of him. We want more of him. We want to be with him. We want to be close to him. We want to be next to him. We want him. It's like saying, if you love Disneyland, you'll put gas in your car and you'll go to Disneyland. If you love it, you're going to want to be there. If I love my wife... I'm going to want to go on a date night with her. And when she asks, why are we doing this? What's the occasion? And I go, well, because I'm your husband, I have to do it. That proves it's not love. It's duty driven. And that's not love. So these commands make perfect sense. If you love me, then you're going to do what I have given to you to do to be with me fully. You're going to do what gets you more of me. Now, this brings us to a question of why then do we not keep his commands? Why do we sin? You ever wonder that? Just why do I sin? Why am I sinning again? Why am I sinning in the exact same way? What is it? As distasteful as the truth might be, the reason why we sin is so clear in the Bible. It's so obvious in the Bible. We sin because we love it. We sin because we love it. If sin didn't attract us, then it would have absolutely no power over us. We sin because we love sin. So how do we not sin? How do we keep his commandments? We fight the pleasures of sin with greater satisfaction in Jesus Christ, a greater pleasure, a desire and a love for Jesus. Because if we love him, then we're naturally going to do what he tells us to do. Because what he tells us to do helps us grow greater love and affection for him. It gets us more of him. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says this. We overcome, this is a little bit of a paraphrase, we overcome the power of anything by shutting off its life source. Since the life source of sin is our love for it, then we defeat sin when we deprive it of our affections or we displace it with a greater affection. That's what Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish preacher calls the expulsive power of a greater affection. An affection that moves in, I love this more than that. 
Our behaviors change as our affections change. We conquer sinful passions not by willpower. We conquer sinful passions by actually seeking to act in accord with the changed desires that we have. There's two ways to fix the problem of sin in our hearts and in our lives. People come to me and they say, I'm struggling with this, 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 and this. Five sins I'm struggling with. Can we like do biblical counseling on all five of these? And we'll take a month for each and we'll memorize verses for each. Can we do that? And I say, yeah, we, we can. But there's two ways of going about this removal of sin. Just picture a big shipyard with a bunch of ships that are stuck. Water's gone out and they're just stuck in the mud and the dirt. And we need to get those boats out of the mud and the dirt. How do we do it? There's two ways. We can either bring in a crane and lift each specific ship out of the harbor that has no water in it. It's all stuck in mud. We can lift each one, move it out, and transport it where it needs to go. We can do that for all five of these specific sins that you have. It'll take time. It'll take devoted effort to each specific thing. Or you know what else we can do? We can open the floodgates and flood the harbor with water again, and all of them will rise at the exact same time. That, that water, that flood is a love for Jesus. When that flows into your soul, a love for Jesus will change the way that you look at sin. Now, you do need willpower, right? You need to work. Romans chapter 6, kill sin by the power of Jesus. You need to do it. But don't ever do it on your own or don't ever try to do it first. Let God's love throw those sins out and change your taste buds. This is why Christianity is supernatural. The Christian life is a supernatural life because you on your own do not have the power to love Jesus. Apart from Jesus, you can't love Jesus. Apart from Jesus, what can you do? You can try and keep his commandments. You can do a list. And this is why, as I was reading through these verses, I thought we need to camp on verse 15 because I've heard this so many times when I say, let's work on this together. Let's, let's work through this together. You have a specific issue. I want to work with it according to the Bible. And I hear this phrase, and you've probably heard it too. I've tried Christianity. It doesn't work. My guess is you've tried Christianity the wrong way, right? You've tried, okay, I need to love God. Fine, I'll love God. I'm going to do rules. I'm going to keep a list of rules and regulations. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. And because I do what God tells me to do, then he'll love me, right? There we go. We're good. I'm going to try Christianity. But it doesn't work. It fails because that's not Christianity. You cannot do anything to love Jesus. You cannot do anything to create those taste buds. You need the new birth. We studied that in John 3. You can't make yourself love Jesus. You can ask the Holy Spirit to grow in you a love for Jesus. But you don't have the power to love Jesus on your own. So if you're here this morning and you feel that sense in your heart where I am stuck and I'm thinking about quitting this idea of Christianity because it doesn't work. I have tried time and time again, and it just doesn't work. Can I plead with you this morning to just maybe stop, press pause on your life, and just ask the question, are you trying to fix things in your life by keeping rules? Or are you just seeking to love Jesus? Do you have a love for Jesus that is greater than anything in this world? Grow your love for Jesus. And you can do that by asking the Spirit to work in your own heart. So sanctification is really the rise and fall of our delighting in Jesus. As we delight in him, we're doing well. As we don't, we're struggling in sin. We're saved. We're we're being sanctified. But sometimes we leave. Think of Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus. You have left your first love. You've forsaken your first love. Think of Jeremiah chapter 2. You have forsaken the fountain of living water. Now go back. You have a source that you know brings satisfaction. You've tasted and you sin. Go back. Go back. When Jesus is our first love, walking with him is our first priority. When he isn't our first love, then walking with him is not our first priority. This, this changes everything. This is the paradigm-shattering truth of the gospel that changes everything. We love spiritual disciplines here at CBC. We love reading our Bibles, praying. We love the means of grace. 
We love small group. We love men's studies and women's studies. Why do we love these things? Why do we put all these things on our calendar? Why do we encourage our people to be involved in all of them? Is it duty-driven? Is it stoic-driven? Is it we'll come to everything and then you'll be spiritual? No, based on this, if you love Jesus, you're going to want to be with people who love Jesus, who help show you Jesus is lovely. I love small groups. And the reason why I love small groups is because as I'm struggling, right about Wednesday afternoon, I'm ready to just give up. And then people come over to my house and they tell me how amazing God is. And I go, I remember how amazing God is. We need each other. We need that. Small groups and spiritual disciplines are not a list to check off, something I'm just going to check this off the list. I go to these things. I do these things because I want to be told of the beauty of Jesus and grow a greater love for him. It's all about love. It's all about love. As our understanding of the beauty of God's grace fills our hearts with love for Jesus, we will want to walk with him. Spiritual disciplines help fill our hearts with a love for Jesus. So we want to do those so that we can walk with him. Just think of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God's appeared, and it instructs us. His love has changed us. So what is a love for Jesus? What is this love for Jesus? It's not keeping commandments. It's not obedience. Love does not equal obedience. Obedience is the result of love, and love is just desiring him more than anything. We don't do that perfectly. Please, please don't walk out of here thinking, well, I don't love Jesus above all things every second of every day. Nobody does. But if you've tasted, if you've had that moment in your life where you've tasted, oh, I want him. I want him more than anything. He's more glorious than anything. You've tasted that run back a time and time again. Don't get used to turning off those taste buds and tasting sin again. This is why Paul prays so often, open their eyes, open their eyes. Ephesians chapter 1, open the eyes of our hearts. Because when our eyes are open and we see Jesus, we love him, we we want more of him. But sometimes our spiritual eyes shut as our fleshly eyes open to movies or television or whatever. Not even bad things, they can be good things that take us away from God. And so Paul prays, Open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus as truly attractive. What does it mean to love him? What does it mean? What are these commandments? They're not, they're not just behavior modification. They're getting more of Jesus. They're being with him. They're being in fellowship, sweet relational fellowship with him. And of course, we're going to keep them. How do we keep them? We keep them by loving Jesus and we want to be with him. Number three, just really quickly, we're going to take a minute to do this because We need to spend more time on this next week. What are you promised if you love him? What are you promised if you love him? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what are you promised? Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And he will be with you forever. You're promised the helper. And he is the spirit of truth. Verse 17, he will abide in you. He abides with you right now because he is in Jesus and Jesus is with them. But he will abide in you once I leave, Jesus is saying. So you'll get the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, I will not leave his orphans. I'm going to come to you. What do orphans need? I'm going to provide everything that orphans need for you. And I will come to you. So you're going to get the Holy Spirit. You're going to get me. Verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. But you will see me because I live. You will live. There's another promise. You're going to live also. You're going to die, but you're going to live again. John 11, whoever dies in believing in Jesus doesn't die. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. That's, that verse is unbelievable. I am in the Father. Okay, we know that. You are in me. Mm, Okay, I kind of get that. We'll get that more fleshed out for us in John 15. And I in you, therefore I'm always with you. You're always with me and I'm always with the Father. Therefore you're in the Father. So he promises these believers who love Jesus, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, you're going to get me, you're going to get the Father, you're going to, you're going to get those things, you're going to get those people. Verse 23, the last thing that Jesus promises here, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. We will come to him. Not you are going to go to him. He will come to you. The only other place in the New Testament or in John, in the Gospel of John, that that word abode in the Greek is used is John chapter 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Remember when we covered that permanent places where you get to stay. It's not a hotel where you're passing through. You get to live there forever. Jesus uses that verse here in verse 23, that word here in, in verse 23 to say, We will make our abode with you now. We're bringing heaven to you. We're going to have heaven on earth because of these promises. You get the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Think about what the disciples were wanting. They wanted to see the Father, and Jesus says, yeah, you'll get him. They wanted to be with the the Son forever. They wanted to be with Jesus forever. Don't leave us. We want to be with you. And he says, oh, I'll come get you. I'll be with you forever. They wanted the presence of God forever, and he says, you'll get it with the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you forever. These are amazing promises, and we'll dive into each of them next week. But as we conclude this morning, we've asked, what does it mean to love Jesus? What are the commandments, and what does it mean to keep them? And what are the promises? We did that very quickly. The last question that we have to ask in conclusion is, why would we ever want to love Jesus? Why would we ever want to love him? The Bible's saying he's lovely and beautiful and glorious. He's trustworthy. He's true. But if we are asking, if we're saying this morning, we're asking our hearts to love him, to cherish him better than anything in this world. My question is, why would we ever do that? Why would we love Jesus? Again, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, you know it. We love him because why? He first loved us. Or Galatians 2.20, he gave himself for us. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by this, God's love is demonstrated. There's a story of a little girl who spoke to a preacher after his sermon and said, Okay, I don't think I love Jesus the way you're telling me to. I don't think I love Jesus enough. What should I do? Have you ever had somebody ask you that question? I don't love Jesus the way that you're telling me I should. What should I do to love him more? What would your answer be? The preacher said, little girl, as you go home today, think about how much Jesus loves you. Sing to yourself, Jesus loves me. And remind yourself constantly of the love that he has for you every day this week. And come back on Sunday and tell me what happened. When she came back the next Sunday, she said, oh, I do love Jesus. I began to think of how much Jesus loved me and died in my place. And I found my cold heart growing warm. And all at once, it was full of love for Jesus. This is the only way any of us ever learn to love Jesus. We begin by learning and believing what the Bible says about us about the bad news, that we are sinfully depraved, we are lost in our condition, we are spiritually dead. And then it tells us that even though we are the vilest of sinners, nevertheless, Jesus came and died in our place, the just for the unjust. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. The punishment that was meant for us fell upon him. So when we see our Savior's amazing love, then we come to grow in our love for him. We love him because he first loved us, and because we love him, We keep his commandments. He gave himself for us. He delivered us. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln when he was working as a a lawyer. He went to a slave market. Somebody was being auctioned and he cast the highest bid for the slave. He purchased the slave and immediately turned him around and said, you can go free. And the slave said, Mr. Lincoln, are you really setting me free from these chains? And he said, yes. You're free. The slave said, are you saying that I no longer have to follow a master? Lincoln said, yes, you can go wherever you want. And the slave said, then I want to go with you. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus has died in your place and delivered you from the slave market of sin, and you know that and you taste that, how could you possibly not want to go with him? So, 
May we stare at the love that Jesus has given us. May that grow in us a love for him that's greater than anything in this world. And then may we naturally, obediently follow what he tells us to do. Yes, it's a, it's a fight. But it's a fight that can be won because we have a source and a motivation in our hearts that's greater than a love that we have for sin ultimately. So let's stare at the love that Jesus has given to us. Let's love him back. And let's follow him all of our days. God, we thank you so much for your word. And I pray that your spirit would confirm these truths in our hearts. If we love you, we will keep your commandments. God, free us from the performance mentality, from the track of, I need to do certain things so that God will love us. God, you love us in spite of us. You love us because of Jesus. And may we see your love for us because of Jesus. And may that grow in us a love for him that is greater than anything in this world. So now, Father, as we respond very clearly, the implication is to stare at your love, to stare at your love, to stare at your love, and then to return and love you back because of the love that you've given to us. God, may we do that through song in a way that would please you and would change our hearts from the inside out. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He would give His only Son To make a wretch's treasure How great the pain of searing turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulder Give an end.